I'd like to begin the conference with a short chant in Sanskrit. In India, we always begin with a chant because it links us with the past of humanity. Sanskrit is perhaps the most ancient language in the world today, which is still in use. It's a sacred language. It's a language of the gods, they call it. Devanagari is a beautiful word. It opens us up to the past of humanity with which we're all linked. We all belong to this past of humanity which is moving, growing through history, growing with us here. So it means very roughly, let us enjoy together, let us share together, let us strive together, let us shine together, let there be no quarreling among us. Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 So Benedict describes the monastic life as a search for God. This search has gone on from the beginning of human history, and it was perhaps never more intense than it is today. People everywhere are seeking for an ultimate meaning and purpose in life. In a world where meaning and purpose often seem to have been lost. What answer can St. Benedict and the tradition which come from him give to this problem? How can we find God in the world today? St. Benedict, of course, comes from within the Christian tradition. But what answer can Christianity give? It is itself divided, and many have lost faith in it and are seeking God in other ways. Is there within the Christian tradition a path to the supreme, not by way of doctrine or ritual, but of direct experience of God? That is what people are looking for today, not words or thoughts, but direct experience. Is there a way to the direct experience of God, of truth and reality in the Christian tradition? I believe that there is, and that Father John Maine was one of those who opened the way to this experience for people today. He found it in the Benedict tradition stemming from the fathers of the desert. And we come here today to reflect on the message he has left us as a way to discover for ourselves the tradition of this wisdom which is the knowledge of God through love. Father John was a man of great wisdom and above all of great love. Let us listen to what he has to say and find for ourselves the way to this experience of God 
so that we can share it with the world which is waiting to hear this message and to find its way back to God. In this talk, I will be drawing especially on a talk of John Main on the witness to the world of monastic prayer, and I invite you all to share his vision and to translate it into your lives. Father John begins by saying that the call of the monk, and hence of humanity as a whole, insofar as it is an archetype of the monk in every human being, is to be open to one's eternal potential in God, in the new creation whose center is Christ. There is a monastic archetype in all humanity. Behind all the diversities of human nature, there is a common ground. And in that common ground, every human being is in search of God, of ultimate meaning, of ultimate truth. And it's a solitary search in a way. It's something that touches the depth of our being and which no one else can give us. We have to open up that depth. And then we touch God, then we touch reality. And that is the monk within us, with every human being. St. John Main puts it, to be opened one's eternal potential in God, in the new creation whose center is Christ. Every human being has a capacity for God, a capacity to be drawn by God into the depths of our being and to experience the presence of God, of the infinite eternal reality which sustains the world as the ground and source of one's own being. And here we come across a problem, you know, that for many people the word God has lost its meaning. They don't like to use it at all. And in fact, sometimes it's quite embarrassing to use it because it gives the wrong image to people so easily. It's helpful to get over the word, as it were, and to open ourselves to a deeper meaning and here is a particular problem, you know, for the Christian, that our concept and our image of God, derived from the Gospel, from Jesus, is primarily the Father in heaven. And when we turn to the traditions of the East, they have a very different, almost opposite view. For them, God is much more the ground, the source, this being behind the world. I like to tell the story of our founder, Father Moshanar, the founder of our ashram in India. For many years, he was a parish priest in Tamil Nadu, South India, where we are now. One day, he went up to a group of school children and asked them, where is God? And some were Hindus and some were Christians. And all the Christians pointed up there, God is in heaven. And all the Hindus pointed here, God is in the heart. They're two different ways, and they're complementary, you see. You can think of God above, the Father, the Creator, sending down His grace, becoming incarnate in Jesus. But equally, we can think of God as the spirit within, the ground of our being, the source of everything. And they're opposite and complementary. And one of the things I'm learning today, I think perhaps we all are, is how to reconcile opposites. So often we think it must be one thing or the other, but nearly always it's both and. 
And the Chinese, you know, have that beautiful conception of the yin and the yang. Everything is interrelated. Don't put things down this and put them this way, but learn to see how opposites come together. When we think of God, we need the, both images. We need the Father in heaven, we need the Holy Spirit within. The direct experience of God is not something which requires any special learning or ability. It is something which exists at the very center of our being, which gives meaning and purpose to our existence, and which alone can answer the deepest need of human life. And here perhaps I should mention, you know, that in our little ashram in South India, we have people coming from all over the world, from all five continents, and it's almost uncanny. They're all in search of the same thing, you know. They're all trying to find a deeper meaning in life, a deeper self, a deeper relation to God, to humanity, to realize God, we often say in India. And this search is going everywhere. People are searching for God. But for most people, this capacity has been almost lost, has been so obscured that they no longer are aware of it. Particularly here in America, wherever you have a materialist civilization, you know, people have lost this dimension in their lives. They're so occupied with the world around them, so absorbed in its problems, its pleasures, but also its pains, that they don't have the power to get beyond. They've lost that sense that they're open to the God, to the transcendent. And this sense for God has been obscured and almost lost, and that is what we're trying to recover. And these meditation groups, you know, throughout the world are of people who are searching to find this deeper meaning, this reality of God in their own lives among us here where we are. Father John refers to this movement as the new creation. This capacity for God, which is innate in every human being, has been obscured through sin. It is through alienation from one's own true being. And sin is alienation. It's failing to know oneself as one really is. Through alienation from one's own true being, from reality, from God. And the new creation is the renewal of our being, which takes place when we awake to who we are. You know, in India, they often ask that question, who am I? Am I this body sitting here? Am I this personality relating to other people? Or is there something deeper within, beyond my body, beyond my mind? Is there a deeper reality in me and in all of you and in all the world around us? So the new creation arises when we awake to who we are, to the reality behind all the superficial appearances of our life. As Father John says, the new creation is passing beyond all the illusions and images which we project of ourselves and the world around us and discovering our true being, our inner self, which has been hidden behind all these illusory appearances. And we all of us and the whole human family, you know, tends to get lost in this world of appearances, which is eventually an illusion, and to lose sight of the reality behind it all. 
Father John sees a monastic life, that is the life of the monk hidden with everyone, as a way of transcendence. Karl Rana, who is a very great theologian, he's very difficult, I'm afraid, but he really was a mystic, you know, and he had a deep insight into the mystery of God. He described a human being as being constituted by the capacity for self-transcendence, to be able to go beyond oneself. We have fallen into a separated self, shut out from others and from the ground and source of our own being. And we have to transcend this separated self, this ego, which hides our true being. And we have to open ourselves to God and the world, to the light and the truth, which are everywhere and in every person. This separated self is a source of all evil. The ego is not evil. We have to have an ego, a separate self. A child has to grow, become aware of itself, separate from its mother, to become a person. But then we get shut up in that ego. And that shuts us out from others, shuts us out from God, and imprisons us. And to some extent, we're all imprisoned in this separate self. And grace of God and prayer, meditation are the way to get beyond the ego, to open up from the ego. And the way of transcendence, of course, is the way of love. As Father John says, love is to turn beyond oneself to another. That is why he speaks of an infinite expansion of spirit. To love is to expand oneself, to open oneself to the infinity of being which is in us and around us. And this infinity of being in love is what we mean by God. The infinity of being in love is what we mean by God. This in turn leads to a creative development of our whole being, the deepening of the integral harmony of heart and mind. We begin to see now what is the meaning of a new creation. It is to transcend the separated self with its illusory images and desires and to encounter reality, the reality of our own being and in the world in which we live. It sounds very simple, you know, to encounter reality, but we all project images and illusions around us. We're all projecting. You know, a scientist today will tell us that the whole of this three-dimensional world of me sitting here and you there and all this is a projection, you know. The world itself is a field of energies vibrating at different frequencies, and within that field of energies are these various structures, these forms, which we interpret in a three-dimensional universe. But the three-dimensional universe which we project is a projection, in a sense, an illusion. It's an appearance, and the reality is behind the appearance. And prayer meditation is the way to get beyond the appearances, to touch the reality. The reality is God himself who is revealing himself behind all these appearances. The new creation is to transcend the separated self with its illusory images and desires and to encounter reality. The reality is God himself who is revealing himself behind all these appearances. Sahana Vavatu 
Sahanavunaktu Sahaviryam Karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 The method of prayer which Father John discovered was that of Cassian and the Fathers of the Desert of the 4th century. He was a, a monk who came from what is now Yugoslavia, actually, and he went to Palestine, to Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and then he went to visit the monks in the desert of Egypt. And in the 4th century, Egypt, you know, was full of Christian monks. We've gone out in the world of the Roman Empire searching for God in the desert. And he interviewed the monks and wrote these conferences describing their life and particularly their way of prayer. Among these conferences was a conference of prayer by Abbot Isaac, which is a classical teaching on the whole of this subject of meditation. And that is what Father John discovered. And Cashel was one of the authorities for St. Benedict. So the rule of St. Benedict derives its teaching on prayer from Cashel and from the Fathers of the Desert. And that is what Father John discovered in his monastery in Ealing. This prayer, which they called pure prayer, without words or thought, is the secret of prayer which Father John discovered. And for many people, this is quite a problem. You see, when we think of prayer, we think of words and thoughts. We say the Our Father, we think about God. We, and all that, of course, is necessary as a beginning. But prayer has to lead beyond words and beyond thoughts. And meditation proper is going beyond words and beyond thought, which Evagrius, one of the great monks of the desert, called pure prayer. St. Benedict himself mentions purity of heart as the quality of prayer. And this is what we're seeking, that pure prayer. Father John recovered this for us. I myself lived as a Benedictine monk for 20 years in England, and I never discovered it. We hadn't got this practice of meditation in our monasteries. We used to meditate for half an hour after Vespers, but we were given no instruction. There was no real guidance in it. It only came about the time when Father John was bringing out this message. But this is what people are looking for today. And I should mention, many of you must know it, that wonderful little book, The Way of a Pilgrim, about that Russian pilgrim who went all over Russia saying the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He read in the New Testament, you must pray always, pray without ceasing. So he went round to different monasteries, said, how can I pray without ceasing? And one star, an elder, taught him the prayer of Jesus. He said, say it a thousand times, two thousand, five thousand. And he went all over Russia, and the prayer went on night and day, and his whole life was transformed. He, he radiated Christ, you know. It was a wonderful thing. And that book has become very popular. I'm sure many of you know it. I recommend it to all. And it's interesting today, you know, the old communist system is breaking up and the Russian people are rediscovering their soul, you know. In the 19th century, Russia was holy Russia. And these pilgrims were wandering all over Russia to the, the monasteries and the cathedrals and the churches and searching God, you see, and revealing God. So today we think it's coming back again. 
And this is, I say, what people are looking for today all over the world. We're accustomed to pray with words and concepts, and of course they are necessary to begin with. The traditional way of monastic prayer is Lexio Divina. I'm sure many of you feel it with it. The meditative reading of the Bible. This is an excellent practice, but it hardly goes beyond discursive prayer. We're going from thought to thought. It's helpful, it's leading us, but it doesn't take us to the end. It's not yet properly contemplative prayer. Contemplative prayer begins when all discursive thought ceases, when the mind rests in silence in the presence of God. And contemplation, I like to call it the practice of the presence of God. Father John discovered the mantra, the repetition of a sacred word, as the way to contemplative prayer. The mantra is the way to get into that silence, into the presence of God. And here I would like to make a rather important distinction that we learn to think of ourselves always as an integrated whole of body, soul, and spirit. Unfortunately, we've got accustomed to think of a human being as a body, soul, a rational animal, and that's okay as far as it goes, but it leaves out the deeper dimension of our being. And in the early church in St. Paul, you always have this basic distinction body, soul, and spirit. And when we pray, when we meditate, we're not doing it only in our mind, you see. It's so dangerous, particularly in the West, you know, we educate our minds so much, that all our religion is on our heads if we're not careful. And meditation should be a way of bringing it down from the head into the heart. The fathers used to say, lead the thoughts from the head into the heart and keep them there. And the heart is the center where the head joins the rest of the body. And so our meditation takes us from the head into the heart and into the whole bodily being. You see, we have to meditate with our whole being. That is the deepening of the integral harmony of heart and mind, of soul and body. Om Shanti Shanti Many people today, all over the world, are searching to realize the self, to discover their true being and the reality of the world by the method of yoga and meditation. You know, some Christians have a prejudice against yoga, uh, even against meditation, I'm afraid. But we're learning that there are valid methods, you see, which have gone on for hundreds, even thousands of years, by which people have come to discover God, to discover the reality of life. But there are many methods of meditation, as you all know, yoga and Zen, Vipassana, transcendental meditation has had a very wide influence. They all seek to open this secret, to reveal the inner meaning of life and the purpose of life in the world, but the monastic life, as Father John saw it, is essentially the way of love. All these methods have their value, 
and each have their own particular insights. But the particular Christian way which Father John discovered and which we all seek to follow is his way of love. He saw it as essentially a way of love which is shared with others. You know, it's very important that he always saw meditation as a way of opening oneself to others. It can be shutting oneself up, you see, as the danger of it. You know. As Jesus said, go to your chamber in secret, pray to your father in secret, but then you can imagine that you're separating from others. But as Father John saw, as you open to God, you open to others. So he always saw meditation leading to community, which is very important for us today. So he always saw meditation leading to community, which is very important for us today. And he gives a beautiful example of St. Aylred, the abbot of the Cistercian Abbey of Rivo in England, which many of you know, a Cistercian abbot of the 12th century. And this is what St. Aylred writes in his beautiful book, A Christian Friendship or Spiritual Friendship. The day before yesterday, as I was walking round the cloister of the monastery, the brethren were sitting around, forming, as it were, a most loving crown. In the multitude, I found no one whom I did not love and by whom I felt sure that I was not loved. I was filled with such joy that it surpassed all the delights of the world. I felt my spirit transfused into all and the affection of all to have passed into me, so that I could say with the prophet, Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. How did St. Aelred and his brother monks reach this extraordinary degree of love? That is what we have to ask ourselves when we think of community life today. We're trying to find a way of living together in love. And it's very difficult, as you know, how many marriages break up, people go come to marry and they have full of love and they hope it's going to last for life and in a few years it simply breaks up. Something is, is destroying love, you see, and we're trying to find a way, and Christ has revealed to us the way, to live together in love, you see. That is the real secret, and our meditation has to lead us into that love. And Father John had experienced this love, and he taught a method of prayer which he believed could lead others to the same experience. If our meditation doesn't lead to this growth in love, in agape, you know, Christian love, which is self-giving, self-sacrificing love, then it's not fulfilling its purpose. What is the true nature of this prayer, and how has it the power to transform our lives? Father John, I think, again gives the answer when he speaks of transcendence in union. We have, first of all, to transcend ourselves, our ego, to go beyond our senses and our minds and enter into the silence, the stillness, the inward depth of our being. And when we sit quietly in meditation as we did this evening, we're trying to get beyond the senses, beyond the mind and into that inner stillness, that silence in the presence of God. Now many oriental methods teach this way of transcendent, to go beyond the ego, the senses and the mind and to become aware of the transcendent mystery of being in Hinduism known as Brahman or Atman. 
must not uh, undervalue the great power of this, you see. Many people in America and the world and the West today are discovering this way of entering into the depths of their being. They may not believe in God you know, or certainly not be Christians, but they find a way, maybe yoga, meditation, to enter into that depth of their being, to find the inner self. But now the next stage is to open our hearts in love to this transcendent reality. You can go beyond your senses, beyond your mind, enter into a deep stillness and inner silence, but then you have to find this mystery of love at the heart of your being, you see. And that is our particular Christian calling. This transcendence is a way of love, of going beyond our separate self and opening ourselves to others, to that communion of love in which the real meaning of human existence is to be found, and which is, as far as we know, the nature of God, which John Main describes as the mutual love which is God. God is mutual love. You know, we have to be careful when we think about God. It's very dangerous. We project an image of God just as we project the world around us. And most of us have an image of God as a person. But strictly, you see, in the Christian tradition, God is not a person. God is interpersonal communion, which is something much more, you see. And so John Mayne says, the mutual love which is God, God is this communion of love, which is in all of us, which embraces us of all, which is the real meaning of our lives, you see. And so when we meditate, we try to open ourselves to this communion of love that is the deep meaning behind it. This is the other aspect of our infinite potential in God. We know the nature of God as love through its revelation in Christ. Jesus reveals the Father as a source of infinite love which he shares with the Father. And this is the goal of Christian meditation, as Father John said, wonderful phrase, to share in the stream of love which flows between Jesus and the Father and is the Holy Spirit. That's my favorite quotation, really, from Father John. The stream of love which flows between Jesus and the Father and is the Holy Spirit. In our meditation, we enter into that depth where the Holy Spirit is present and it takes us into the inner mystery of God's life, you see, and love. Christian meditation consists in entering into this stream of love in the intimacy of a personal union with the persons of the Trinity. The persons of the Trinity are subsistent relations, they call them. It is being, expressing itself and communicating itself in love. The Father expresses himself in his word. A word is self-expression, and the word of God expresses the Father, and he communicates himself in the Spirit. So the Father knows the Son and loves the Son, and that knowledge and love of the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit, it's mutual love. This is the end of our human quest, to experience love in its ultimate depth, in interpersonal communion. And it's worth reminding ourselves, you know, that for most people, interpersonal relationships are the main features of our lives, whether it's husband and wife, or father and son, or mother and child, or friends, or whatever. It's these relationships of love which make up the reality of our life. And God himself is this relationship of love, you see. 
And what we experience is a, a faint reflection of that love which is eternal in God, in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is the experience of God which we have to seek. To transcend ourselves in a total self-giving in love and find ourselves taken up into an ocean of love which is one deeply personal and at the same time transcends all human limitations. You see, it's deeply personal, and we must always keep that in our hearts, but it also is beyond anything we can conceive of person, you see. It's like an ocean, really. So the two aspects are there. It's a personal communion, personal relationship, but it transcends all the limitations of a person and, and takes us into the depth of the divine being itself. So Father John calls this the movement of transcendence right beyond ourselves into the life of the Trinity, the communion of God, the mutual love which is God. The life of the Trinity is a mutual love which is God, you see. It's wonderful when we realize that. It only remains to add that this love embraces our whole being, body, soul, and spirit. The love which begins with a child's love for its mother or the mother for the child and goes through all the stages of adolescent and married love and opens onto the love of friendship, uniting all human beings in love, as St. Elred described it, this is a love which creates of our divided humanity a new man, as St. Paul called it, a new creation, the mystical body of Christ. This is the new creation in Christ, you see. Perhaps we cannot do better than end with a quotation from the letter to the Ephesians, which I shared with Father Lawrence only just before the conference, and we both agreed it's our favorite expression of Christian meditation, Christian prayer, and is really a summary of Christian contemplation. For this cause, I bow my knees to the Father, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth takes its name. I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened in your inner being with power through the Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love, that you may know with all the saints what is the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth, and may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and be filled with the fullness of God. We have a chant which we all know to use. The meaning of this is, that is full and this is full. The word for full is purnam, and it's the pleroma, the fullness of the Godhead. And God is that fullness, that pleroma. And the world has its own fullness, but when the world comes forth from God, it takes nothing from him and adds nothing to him. God remains ever the same. So this is how it goes in Sanskrit. <coughs> Om Purnamadaha Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnavadaya Purnameva Avasisyate Om Shanti 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 Peace Peace, peace. For the last two or three centuries, 
Contemplative prayer has been considered the work of monks and nuns, very chosen people living a very particular way of life and having nothing to do with the lay person, people working in the world. The great change which is taking place today, you see, the discovery that it's open to everyone. The person who was responsible for bringing contemplative life to the lay people was Father John Main. And it was a wonderful achievement, a great gift of God for the church. And he found this method of meditation, as you know, in the conferences of Cassian, the monk of the 5th century who visited the fathers of the desert in their solitude and described their way of life and prayer. Cashin spoke of pure prayer as a way of meditation by using a short word or verse to repeat it continually as a way of avoiding distractions and attaining purity of heart. He gives the example, God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. That was perhaps the earliest mantra. Whatever the situation, wherever anything occurred, any danger arose or whatever, God come to my aid. Lord, make haste to help me, which your guide in life. And then other verses from the Psalms or the Bible could be taken. And then gradually the Jesus prayer evolved. Around uh, about the fifth or sixth century probably, and in the Eastern Church, as you know, that has become the traditional mantra, the way of prayer, to repeat constantly, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is the typical Christian mantra. This is a prayer without ceasing. It was taken up in the West in a little book on the cloud of unknowing, which has had a tremendous influence on so many people today. I'm sure many of you, or most of you know it, it's a classic, you know, in the Middle Ages, in beautiful English, and very simple and direct. And he says, just take one word, God or love, and focus on the one word. But as a whole, it's a beautiful presentation of contemplative prayer. And then came the Jesus prayer and the way of a pilgrim, which I mentioned yesterday. And this is a tradition of pure prayer which Father John discovered and to which he devoted his life in spreading it throughout the church. Thus opening the way of contemplative prayer to lay people as well as monks. And this is really a very significant movement, you see, what we're celebrating today. This prayer has been considered the work of monks and of nuns and a few chosen people and Father John has opened it up to all of you, to all of us, you see. And it's really a breakthrough, and I think it's a new movement in the church. And as you know, the church today is the movement towards the laity. And this is part of this whole movement of the church of the laity. And you know the word laity comes from the Greek laos, which means people, the people of God, you see. The laity are the people of God. And so Father John has made it possible for the lay person, the ordinary Christian, to share in this deep life of prayer, the inner prayer of the Spirit, which has often been confined to monks and to nuns. The value of this method is that it simplifies prayer and reduces it to its fundamental ground in the depths of the soul. 
See, the problem with the divine office, which many devout Catholics used to recite, is that it, it has all these psalms, it takes a long time, and not many people are really able to enter into it. It's not suited to lay life. But the mantra is perfectly suited to everybody, you see. It's a simple, reducing prayer to its basis. It releases one from the endless distractions of the mind and integrates the whole person in its deepest center. It can be described quite simply as the practice of the presence of God. In the Benedictine tradition, as I experienced it in the first half of this century, there was no method of meditation. We were left to ourselves. St. Benedict structured the monastic prayer around the divine office, the seven hours of prayer during the day, beginning with the night office in the early hours of the morning. It is true that the chanting of the divine office in Gregorian chant had a deeply contemplative character and could lead to contemplation. But it was not a strictly contemplative prayer. I was 20 years in a monastery in England Chanting the Latin office in Gregorian chant was a wonderful experience. It's deeply contemplative, you know. I'm sure many of you know it, and I'm always thankful for that. In the same way, amongst Lexio Divina, meditating on the sacred scriptures could lead to true contemplation, but again it was not properly contemplative, insofar it was a method of meditation with words and thoughts which could easily be distracting. And as you know, pure prayer is prayer beyond words, beyond thoughts. It was this great insight of Father John that he was able to see how the divine office could be a preparation for contemplative prayer and also an overflow from one's contemplation, but that it needed to lead to pure prayer. This has served to change the focus of Christian prayer from the divine office, which is the prayer of monks and religious, to the pure prayer of self-surrendering love. That is the essence of this way, which is open to every Christian. I think this is a message for monks as well. In our ashram, we've spontaneously moved to placing the two hours of meditation, morning and evening, at the center of our lives. In India, you know, the early hours, normally half past four, is considered the best time for meditation. The meeting of the light and the darkness is supposed to be the best time for meditation. And in all Hindu ashram practice, you meditate morning and evening at that time for the meeting of light and darkness. And so in our ashram, we normally meet between half past five, half past six in the morning, six and seven in the evening. And everybody, many go and sit by the river, we all take, give our time then to meditation, and that is the focus of the day. Then we go to the church, we have our prayer, we have our mass, and we share together as a kind of overflow from meditation, and also a nourishment you take in from the Bible, from your readings and <coughs> prayers, and uh, open your heart to that. To me, that has changed, as I say, the focus. It now focuses on pure prayer, contemplative prayer, and the other is an overflow from that. I think that this is where Father John is leading us. It must lead, as he showed, to opening monastic prayer to lay people, 
but also to deepening the prayer of the monk so that he can enter into the silence and the solitude of being alone with God while he keeps open to the church and humanity at large through his participation in the divine office. So it works both ways. The monk opens to, to the lay people and shares with them, and lay people discover the deeper way of prayer from the monk. The fundamental insight of Father John was that this pure pair of meditation could be shared with people outside the monastery. Meditation groups dedicated to yoga and Zen, Vipassana, and other Eastern methods of meditation are springing up everywhere in Europe, America, Asia, Australia, and South Africa. So the growth of oblate communities dedicated to meditation in the Christian tradition is part of this world movement. Most of you will probably know the story of how this came to pass. When Father John was a monk of Ealing Abbey in England, a small group of lay people began to come to the monastery to meditate. This grew spontaneously into a regular movement of the spirit, drawing more and more people to meditate with a mantra as Father John taught them, and to begin the regular practice of meditation in their homes. It was apparently quite traumatic, you know. The little group gathered, began to meditate. More people began to come. Then they began to meditate in their homes. And they felt that the Holy Spirit was driving them. It was extraordinary, apparently. And that was initiated what we're sharing today, this discovery of the way of prayer with a mantra. This led to Father John's being invited to open a house of prayer in Montreal in Canada where monks and lay people could live together and share their way of meditation with others. And this has led, in terms of the growth of meditation groups under the guidance of Father Lawrence, who accompanied Father John to Montreal and has now spread to hundreds of groups of oblates of St. Benedict throughout the world. An oblate of St. Benedict is a lay person, though priests may also join, man or woman, married or single, who dedicate their lives to following the rule of St. Benedict and its basic principles, especially the basic pattern of prayer and work, ora et labora, to pray, to work, centered on the service of God. In former times, this prayer was based on the divine office with the repetition of the Psalms, but now it's based on the mantra. And that is the great change which has taken place. Father John's inspiration, which changed this custom of saying the Psalms, Divine Office, so that prayer centered on meditation with a mantra was introduced, which could be practiced by anyone who was prepared to give up half an hour every morning and evening to single-hearted devotion to God alone in the midst of the distractions of daily life. 
And that, I think, is what all of you are trying to do, to give up that half hour, morning and evening, to God alone. And, of course, you, you withdraw from ordinary life, and you're enriched by it to go back to daily life with more meaning, with more understanding, with more purpose behind it. This meant that a way of praying leading to the experience of God in love, and we was always, as I mentioned yesterday, it's always discovery of God in love, which is the end of our meditation, which had been largely confined to monasteries and convents, was now thrown open to all. Francis of Sales, you know, in the 17th century, in his book on the devout life, had spread this message of the love of God to lay people. It was very famous at the time, and has had a very wide influence, that book, The Devout Life. But it was the genius of Father John which found a simple and direct method of meditation which could bring this message effectively into the daily life of lay people. And I remember for myself, you know, as I said, we had no method of meditation in the monastery. And when people came, I had no method to give them. And it was when I found Father John's method of prayer with the mantra that I found I could, something simple, direct, and clear and positive, which people could take and use. And that, I think, is what all of you have discovered. It's a real way of entering into this deep prayer. The next stage of this movement, which is only now beginning, is that these meditation groups, in which people meet normally several times a week to meditate together, are beginning to grow into regular oblate communities. It is the value of a specific method of meditation rooted in the Christian tradition and leading to the transformation of Christian life, which is a gift of Father John to the Church. I think we must go back to that, you know, that we owe this to him. So often no one man can change life for thousands, if not millions. Take Gorbachev, if you like, you know, he's changed the history of the world, that one man. And so often it's, it's one man has to break through and then everything else follows from that. That the similar method of centering prayer developed in Spencer Abbey in Massachusetts, is another branch of the same tradition with only slight differences in the actual practice. Many of you know Father Thomas Keating, Father Basil Pennington. It's very similar. It has its own distinctive character in certain ways, but they're two parallel movements, I would say, and equally valid. And Father Thomas Keating today, I think, is one of the great spiritual masters, you know. He has a great message for us all. We're all concerned now with these lay communities. And I've been very much impressed, you know, since I've been in America the last two or three months, the number of people, you know, who are looking out for a community of this kind. There are a vast number of people today who feel a call to give their lives to God, but not in a monastery or a convent in the traditional way, and not simply in a family, secular way. You see, they want a dedicated secular life, you could call it. And I think the Church today and the Holy Spirit today is raising up these lay communities as a new way of Christian life, really, you see. 
And that, I feel, is what we're all engaged in and what we all have to share together. And that's why a meeting like this, coming from all over the world, is very, very significant, you see. We're trying to discover a new way of living out the fullness of Christian contemplative life in the church. How to organize lay communities where the focus will always be on prayer and meditation. That is the center, you see. And normally prayer and meditation in the morning and the evening. This focus on prayer and meditation has to be integrated in a normal life, earning one's living in the world. That's where your problems begin, of course. And that's where we have to work on it. But it can involve varied occupations and it can involve cultivation of music, of art, of science and philosophy. But another very important aspect which we're developing is the care for those in need. And this can be a tremendous incentive to prayer to go out to the handicapped, physically handicapped, mentally handicapped. You know the Institute of Jean Vanier, L'Arche, started in Canada and in France. It's wonderful, you know, to find how mentally handicapped people, they've all been rejected, you know, and they feel it. People despise them, they don't, and they, they're not human practically. And yet, behind it all, as Jean Vanier finds, is a longing for love, you know, a great capacity for love. And when you give that love, discover what's behind it all, they simply fly, you know. It changes their lives. Also, people with AIDS, you know. You know, AIDS can be a tremendous grace. When you know you're going to die, it really sets your sights, you know, in a new direction. And if people can learn this is not simply a punishment for my sins or whatever, but it is an opening on God, an eternal life, they can make their disease a means for tremendous growth in grace, you know. Yeah, I think the real possibilities there. And one of the things that helps these things is music, you know. Many people who are mentally defective and even schizophrenics and people will respond to music now. So there again is something which one can do to help people to discover their deep center. Another very interesting aspect which Father Lawrence mentioned yesterday is the prison apostolate. In England there's an ashram project in prisons and there's been a very good book written, I forget the name, we, we are all doing time, I think it is. <laughs> and that opens up the lives of the prisoners, you know, to see that they're not simply rejected, they can have a new life. And I was in touch with one in England, he was in prison for smuggling marijuana, I think, and he told me that uh, people had been trying to help him for years and nothing had happened. But when he got on to meditation in a few months, it changed his life, you know. And it's, you see you're solitary there, you have nothing to do, nothing to read. And then you have this wonderful opportunity to be alone with God. You find God in your prison cell. So there's great opportunity there. So all these are ways, you see, in which a meditation center can move out, help others, and be immensely helped by them. 
And of course, one of the things we're discovering today is you go to help the mentally handicapped or whatever, and you find how much they help you, you see, again and again. The people in uh, these uh, institutes of L'Arche tell me, we learn far more than they do, you know. They teach you what to be human. They teach you how to be human, really. So this is the way in which we can develop lay communities with work of various kinds. But we always have to remember that these are essentially contemplative. We must never let that go, you see. Otherwise, we're going to lose the real value and meaning. Whatever the work done, whatever our engagement with people, and whatever service we do, it must be related and integrally associated with our prayer, our meditation, our contemplation. Because we're trying to bring our whole life, our whole being, our secular life, into this inner life of prayer. That's really what we're seeking, isn't it? So that is our hope for these lay communities. This is our prayer that our meeting here this week and all the other meetings taking place will gradually evolve, you see, into, in a sense, almost a new kind of church, you know, a church which is focused on contemplative prayer, renewing the whole Christian life and, we hope, human life in this context of prayer. In our ashram in Shantiwanam, we have a continual flow of visitors from all over the world, all in search of God, looking for a way of prayer and meditation which would enable them to discover their true self, to integrate their personality, and to relate to the church in a new and significant way. And it's a bit saddening, you know, the number of people who simply leave the church today, you know, because they can't find the kind of prayer they're looking for. I can't say how many, but I get the impression that 60% of Catholics who come to our ashram are no longer practicing. They don't go to Mass anymore, and yet they're searching for God, you see. And they come to, to learn how to become closer to God. And uh, I think there are many reasons for that involves the church as a whole. But I do think that people are discovering that when they get into the prayer of the mantra, it takes them back to their faith. So many people have come to the ashram, they're no longer going to Mass, and after some weeks in the ashram, they spontaneously come back to communion, to reading the Bible, discovering the church from within. If you look at the church from without and you just go to your parish church and see things going on, you can get alienated quite easily. But when you learn to see what's behind the mass, what's behind the church, the reality of Christ, then of course your whole life changes. And that's what we have to help people to do, to see the inner mystery of the church behind the outer forms. Many have given up the practice of their faith and are looking for a more authentic way of Christian life. And of course, they go to Buddhist monasteries, to Hindu ashrams, to Sufi orders and so on, all over the world. But many, after some experience, recover their roots, as they say. After a time, they begin to feel they've lost something and they come back. But uh, innumerable people go out, first of all, to rediscover the faith. In their experience of prayer in the ashram, they often recover their Christian roots and are able to see the church in a new life, no longer from without, but from within. It is the renewal of Christian life in this way 
and the recovery of the deeper reality of the church that our meditation must lead us. The heart of Father John's main method of meditation was the use of the mantra, the Sanskrit word, and derives from a long tradition of prayer and meditation in India. It was the genius of Father John which discovered the same tradition in the Fathers of the Desert and saw it as a sacred tradition which had come to St. Benedict from the Fathers and had been preserved, though almost lost, in the Benedictine order today. The mantra was really his discovery and he was the first to bring it to the light and make it known as a valid method of prayer in the church. The art of the mantra consists in repetition of a sacred word or a verse from the Bible, which has the effect of centering the person, unifying all the faculties, and focusing them on the indwelling presence of God. The same discovery was made in Spencer Abbey under the influence of the Maharishi's transcendental meditation and led to the concept of centering prayer. It is a method of centering oneself, of finding the inner center of one's being and bringing all the faculties of sense and reason to unite in this center and so open the depths of the human person to the indwelling presence of God. Father Don chose as his mantra the Aramaic word Maranatha, which can be translated as either Come Lord or Our Lord Comes, from St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Aramaic word Ma simply means Lord, and then An, the suffix An means Ah, so Maran is really Our Lord. It can be translated Maranatha, Our Lord Comes, or it can be Maranatha, Come Our Lord. Probably the first is the more correct, Maran, Our Lord Comes. It's simply the Lord is coming, that is what we're saying. It's one of the very few Aramaic words, the language of Jesus himself, which have survived in the New Testament. There are six words. When he raised the little girl, he said, Talitha kumi, little girl, arise. That's in Aramaic. And on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my Lord, my God, why have you forsaken me? So apart from that, it's all translated into Greek, you see. And this is very important, you know, because Jesus spoke Aramaic. 
I don't think everybody realizes, our Gospels are written in Greek. And Maranatha occurs in the first letter of Paul to Corinthians, was used by the early church, one of the relics of Aramaic, of Jesus' own speech. That's why it's a very sacred word, you see, Maranatha, Lord come. So when we use that mantra, it takes us back, you see, to the time of Jesus himself. It takes us back, therefore, beyond the New Testament itself, which was written in Greek. We must always remind ourselves, you see, the New Testament came you know, over a period of about 50 years after Jesus, translated into Greek. It takes us back beyond the New Testament itself, which was written in Greek, to the earliest tradition of the church before it had emerged from its Jewish matrix. See, the whole history of early Christianity, it grew up in this Jewish world, Jesus and the disciples speaking Aramaic, worshipping in the temple, going to the synagogue and so on. And then in the course of the century, it began to move to the Gentiles, people outside. And Paul, of course, was the chief influence who carried this message to the Gentiles. And Paul was a Greek-speaking Jew, you see, from Tarsus. And so he carried the message in Greek, and the letters of Paul and the others were written in Greek. And we must remind ourselves, it's strange at first, that Jesus Christ is a Greek translation, you know. The name in Hebrew or Aramaic was Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Christ, you see. So we had this Greco-Roman transmission. And so the whole message of Jesus was transmitted through the Greek, you see, into the Greco-Roman world and into another culture. And this is rather important, you know. It was a meeting of two cultures. It grew out of a purely Jewish culture. Jesus was wholly belonged to that Jewish world. He came into the world not simply any culture, but a particular Jewish culture which had been prepared by God over the centuries. The gospel grew up in that Jewish world, and in the course of the century, it grew out of it into the Greco-Roman world, and then it moved to Europe as a whole, then to America. And we belong to this evolutionary circle, you see, coming out of this Jewish matrix and gradually growing through contact with different cultures. And today, for the first time, this Jewish, Greek, Roman, European, American religion is really coming in contact with Asia and India and China and Japan, you see. So it's a great moment in this growth of Christianity, really. That's where we are today. No doubt there is a special quality in such a word, like Maranatha, which attunes us to the earliest tradition of Christianity and takes us back, as it were, to the roots of our religion. Father John took this tradition of prayer, which comes down from the fathers of the desert, and eventually from the New Testament. And Jesus himself you know, one of the great insights of New Testament scholarship today is that Jesus' whole life centered around what they call his Abba experience. Jesus referred to God as Abba, Father, 
but apparently it's very intimate, more like daddy, you know, it's a child sort of Abba, it's like Mama Abba. And Jesus had this intimate relation with God as Father. And don't forget the Jews had the opposite, you see Yahweh was the God of heaven and so on, and the reverence was so great they didn't like to name him. They substitute Adonai or something for Yahweh. You couldn't name him. He was so far above you. And was a sense of fear and of judgment and the law which had to be kept. And Jesus went right out of that to this intimate awareness of his total oneness with Abba, with his father. And I think you could say that Abba was Jesus' mantra, you see. He simply lived in that intimacy with the Father as Abba. On that word, with all that it implied, his whole life centered. And so from him we gain this tradition of the mantra. Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Ma vidvishavahai Om Shanti 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 It is important to remember that prayer and meditation occupy the whole person we pray with the body and the soul, as well as with the spirit. We're using our bodies in praise. Even when we pronounce words, still more when we chant and sing. In strictly contemplative prayer, the action of the body is reduced to the minimum, but even there is the movement of the breath. And you know, all the Eastern traditions emphasize so much the importance of the breath. You know, the Zen meditation, it focuses on the breathing in the abdomen, the breathing in and out. This is called the hara, you know, and it's a very important center. We shouldn't neglect it's an emotional center, but it's a real center of the psyche. And many people find it helpful to focus on the hara. Others prefer to focus on the heart, and that is perhaps more central. And you can focus on this Anya Chakra here. It's called the third eye. In India we put a crimson mark here. Two eyes are the eyes of duality. You see the outer world, the outer self. The third eye is the inner eye, which sees the inner light. For many people, the attuning of the mantra to the breathing is of great importance and helps us to bring the body into the heart of the prayer. But of course, in strict meditation, the body is brought as far as possible to stillness, so as not to distract the mind. Some insist on an upright position and complete stillness, and that's very strong in the Hindu tradition in yoga, perfectly upright spine and the complete stillness. The great need in meditation is relaxation. Body and mind have to be totally relaxed so that the spirit can be totally open and receptive to the spirit of God. They say in yoga that the position should be sukha stira, 
easy and firm, relaxed and firm. It should be firm to keep you steady, but it should be relaxed at the same time. We must remember that sounds vibrate through the whole body and have a profound effect on the psyche. It is impossible to conceive the effects of the sound of a modern city on the psyche with its endless distractions. You see, we're all being bombarded day by day, hour by hour, with all these noises in a city and all these sounds and all the images and television. The whole thing is a bombardment. And that is why we need these times of silence, you see. Let it all go, go into the silence. It is the function of the mantra to recollect the soul, to bring it back to its centre and unite the whole person, body, soul and spirit, with the Spirit of God. I'm not quite sure whether I've made that clear, this very important distinction of body, soul and spirit. You see, we have the body, the physical organism, which unites us with the whole physical organism of the universe. We have the soul, the psyche, a psychological organism, senses, feeling, imagination, reason, will, all that is the psyche. And the center of the psyche is the ego, the ahamkara, and the eye-maker. And that is our psyche, and it's very limited. But beyond the psyche, you see, is the pneuma, the atman, the spirit. And that is the point of self-transcendence. At that point, the body-soul goes beyond its human limitations and opens on the infinite, the eternal, the divine. And meditation is passing beyond your body or soul into that point of the spirit. The aim must steadily be kept in mind of centering the body and the soul in the depths of the spirit, where the human spirit meets the spirit of God. As St. Paul says, the spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. See, at this point of the spirit, the ego is transcended. We open up on the Holy Spirit, and it's the meeting point. And meditation should be that meeting point where the human spirit touches, opens itself to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Very interesting through the New Testament to see how the word spirit is sometimes used to the human, sometimes to the divine. It's the meeting point, you see. The spirit is what St. Francis of Sales called the fine point of the soul. It is the point of self-transcendence where we go beyond ourselves and receive the Divine Spirit into our hearts, that is, into the centre of our being. The repetition of the mantra is simply a way of keeping all the faculties of the soul and body centred in this point of the Spirit. It's a process of unifying all the faculties of the soul at the point of the Spirit <coughs> where they are penetrated by the light of truth. This light is essentially a light of love. It is the love of the Holy Spirit poured into the heart, which brings us face to face with God. And never forget that, you see, in the Oriental tradition, they all enter into this point of the Spirit. All methods of meditation are ways of coming to that inner center, that point of the Spirit, being open to the divine, the transcendent. But what happens there <clears throat> depends on your particular faith and tradition. For a Christian, the point of the Spirit is the point where 
the love of God is poured into the heart, you see, by the Holy Spirit. It is the love of the Holy Spirit poured into the heart which brings us face to face with God. This raises the problem of distractions. When we begin to meditate, the mind begins to wander. For most people, the activity of the mind never ceases. And for most of us in the West, I think this is the greatest problem. We're so habituated to thinking all the time. We're thinking, thinking, thinking. Uh, for people today particularly, whose lives are so full of distractions, for whom television with its constant stream of images is a constant distraction, the problem of controlling the mind is very acute. And don't forget that in Patanjali's yoga, the classical treatise on yoga, I think the first sloka is, yoga is citta vritti niroda, the cessation of the movements of the mind how to stop the mind. It seems that most people cannot stop the continual flow of thoughts, but what they can do is not to attend to it, to let it flow and quietly observe it like clouds in the sky, while the deeper mind, the spirit within, remains quietly resting in the presence of God. To struggle against attractions can do more harm than good. Then the ego comes in, you try to stop yourself, you see, and then it makes it worse. Your mantra goes on quietly and these thoughts keep coming and going, but you needn't attend to them, let them come, let them go, but keep the mantra quietly going beneath it all. Sahaviryam karavavahai Tejasvinavaditamastu Mavidvishavahai Om Shanti Shanti Shanti